So, those of you who were here last week will remember that um, we spoke about self-control and we looked at different, um, different examples of where we can use self-control and different passages where, um, where self-control is, is spoken about in Scripture. And I was reflecting afterwards and it struck me that actually self-control is, is, a, is quite a big subject. And I had a lot of people say to me after the service um, that they'd, they'd got a lot out of it. And so this week is a communion service, which means that we, we deviate away from our normal preaching plan. And so I felt that we'd, we'd, we'd continue the theme. Because the Bible's got an awful lot to say about the theme of self-control. And you can't cover it all in one sermon. You can't cover it all in two sermons either. It would take a lot, lot more than that to cover everything the Bible has to say about self-control. But there were passages that I had to leave out of last week's sermon, which I thought that this week, as preparation for us to come around the communion table, to share in fellowship the body and blood of Christ, the elements that Jesus gave us to represent his sacrifice. I thought that continuing on the theme of self-control and elaborating on that would be an appropriate place for us to be this week. When I was about six, maybe seven years old at primary school, I was never particularly good at maths. Worrying things I spent 12 years working in the financial sector. But maths was never my strong point. And I remember clearly sitting in a classroom at primary school, very young, and we had a test. And I must have been my fairly early days of primary school because it was a test on shapes. Um, it might have been colours as well, I'm not sure, but it was definitely a test on, on shapes. And the teacher was reading out... Um, different shapes, and we had to draw them. Now, in our classroom at the time, it was uh, one of these sort of temporary porter cabin demountable classrooms, whatever you call them, and um, behind her desk, our teacher had uh, a mirror, a sort of a probably A2 size mirror, um, and before we went to assembly and things like that, she'd always just, you know, just check herself in front of the mirror, make sure she was well presented, and... Um, and then she'd make sure that we, you know, we checked ourselves as well, that we buttons were done up and that we were all, all looking all right. And I thought it was quite a good practice, quite a good, quite a good thing to do. When we were doing this test, I, um, for reasons we won't go into, I'd started the term at the back of the classroom and I'd soon ended up sitting at the desk just in front of the teacher's desk. <laughs> I was doing my time. And um, I, I, I was sitting there and I suddenly realised that she was sitting at her desk reading out the questions for this test. And I could see that the mirror was hung on the wall at such an angle that I could see the answer sheet. And I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> at a young age, I suddenly realised that, look, the, the answer, I don't need to, I can see the answers. And so I spent the entire test not listening to what the teacher was, was saying, the questions that she was asking, <laughs> but instead looking at this reflection and carefully drawing what I could see got to the last question and she said, right, swap papers, we're going to mark them. And I had this, this wonderful sense of, of, of contentment. I thought, happy days, right, uh, who, who, wants, who wants the right answers? Anyone? Yeah, you want to mark them? There you go. So I took someone else's and, <laughs> yeah, and I was really confident. I thought, this is good. And straight away, when I saw the other person's answers, I looked up and I, could, I thought, they've screwed this up. Wow. 
And then, of course, the teacher started reading the answers. And I got zero. I got none right. Because I had looked up and I had seen a mirror image, the reflection. And I had written the answers in completely the wrong, the wrong place, the wrong order. I've got zero. Bottom of the class. I sort of reinforced the reason why I was sitting right where I was sitting. Now, I didn't confess to the teacher. Um, I, 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 was just, I sat there in a state of utter confusion. I just couldn't work it out. And it was, it was quite some time later that I realised what had happened. I, I'd, I'd written down, the, I'd, I'd drawn the mirror image of what I could see. No wonder it was wrong. You see, I'd been put in a situation that I was well equipped to deal with. You know, I wasn't great at maths, but I, I knew shapes and things. I could have I could, could got 10 out of 10 like most other kids. But instead, despite the fact that I knew that I had what it took to give the right answers, I suddenly found myself confronted with a much easier option. The temptation was right there, staring me in the face. And I thought, there's the answer. I don't need to do the hard work. I don't need to wait for the questions. Oh, I've just got to copy it down. There's the answer. This is, this is easy. I knew it was the wrong thing to do. I knew that the right thing to do was to do the test properly, but I thought I'd be smart. I thought, I'll, I'll take this option. And it was a mistake. It was a mistake. In the same way that in Genesis chapter 1, when we read, we read the, the creation of the world, and um, that continues in chapter 2, and eventually, having read about God's creation, God's plan, seeing the way that God put, put the world together and put us into the world, put mankind into the world, created Adam, created Eve, we then see the fall. And the fall comes about because Adam and Eve are confronted with what they think is the answer. They're confronted with, well, why can't you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Even now, we, we kind of think, well, hang on a second, if, if, I had, if I had all the answers, if I had the knowledge to solve every problem in the world, then it would be great, wouldn't it? Things would be so easy. For a start, I'd make an absolute fortune. But more than that, we could, we could cure disease, we could, we, could, we could eradicate poverty, we could change the world for the better, if only we had the knowledge. We talk about God who has all the answers and who knows everything and who, whose, whose, whose mind we can't even begin to fathom how great he is. Why doesn't he pass that knowledge on to us? Why does he hold it back? And Adam and Eve were in the garden and... They think they're given that option. They look up and they sort of, they see what they think is the answer, just like the six-year-old boy sitting in the classroom who who looked up and I thought I could see the answer. And I thought, brilliant, I've just got to copy it. They thought, brilliant, we've just got to take that apple, we've just got to eat it. We've just got to eat this fruit and we'll be okay. We'll have the knowledge. And so they did. And as a result of that, we now live in a world of confusion, of chaos, of difficulty, of conflict. That knowledge hasn't quite worked out the way that Adam and Eve expected it to, just like in that classroom 
that test didn't quite work out in the way that I was expecting it to. If Adam and Eve had exercised the self-control it took to resist the temptation, that first temptation put before them, who's to say what would have happened? Now, of course, we don't know that. What we do know is that God is in control, is that God has a plan, and that plan, we can never deviate so far off that plan that we can't find a way back. But, but, if we exercise self-control in the way that God wants us to, then we can avoid deviating too far away. So in scripture, sticking in Genesis, right towards the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 39, we read the account of Joseph. Now Joseph, he's had the the technicolour dream coat, he's been beaten up by his left in the pit, he's been sold to traders, they've taken him and he has ended up in Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he's... He's got a job. He's, he's worked hard. He's, he's shown himself to be a good, a good servant and he's got a job working for, uh, for Potiphar. Potiphar was the head of the imperial guard. So he was, he was sort of a general in the army but this was a, this was a, a, a very high-ranking official. And <clears throat> we're told in Genesis chapter 39 that Joseph is working for Potiphar. And we're told that the Lord was with Joseph, that Joseph prospered, that it was clear that Joseph stood out. We spoke last week, didn't we, about if we exercise our self-control, if we, if, if we do something, um, we need to be doing things as Christians that make us stand out from other people. We need to be the ones, that, the non-anxious presence, the ones who keep our heads in a chaotic situation. And if we do that, then we can, we can have a calming effect on others. We can make a difference. Other people look at us and say, what is it that made you react differently? What is it that sets you apart? Joseph has done this. And it's been noticed by Potiphar. And we're told that Joseph, as a result of the success that God gave him, he found favour in Potiphar's eyes and he became his attendant, his, his PA, if you like. And so, everything, everything that Potiphar has, he trusts Joseph to deal with. He trusts him with his, with his household affairs, with his finances, with his correspondence, with his social diary, perhaps. He trusts him to have a very important role in his life. He even trusts Joseph with his wife. Now, we're told... Joseph was well-built and handsome. So on top of being efficient, of being likeable, of being um, clearly, he must have carried some authority to uh, hold the position that he held, he was also good-looking and a bit of a hunk. Okay? I bet most of the blokes around Joseph couldn't stand him. But... Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph. And she thinks, hmm, hello. My husband is away on business and he's left Joseph here. Joseph is a young, attractive man, handsome and well-built. He's clearly got his head screwed on. I want him. 
ends, Scripture makes no secret of this fact. She simply notices Joseph and says, come to bed with me. Talk about being forward. She's no shrinking violet. She just says, come to bed with me. She claims him. I want you. Joseph is a slave. Now, even though he held this high position, he was still a slave. Make no mistake. So for him to be told, come to bed with me, he's got a moral dilemma. Does he obey the command as a slave should? And yet, if Potiphar finds out, the head of the imperial guard, not only is he probably going to find himself on the wrong end of a sword, he's also completely compromising his values under God. Does he do that? Does he, does he, does he say to Potiphar's wife, okay, just keep it quiet, or, well, look, you're the one asking for this, I'm simply a slave, I'm simply being obedient to, to, my, to my master? Or does he say no? He's got this moral dilemma to deal with, but he, according to Scripture, he doesn't, doesn't battle with it. He immediately responds, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me. Except you. Because you are his wife. Now, I was a young man once. I was never handsome and well built, fair enough. Again, last week, we discussed briefly the fact that advertising today, sex sells. We looked at Job, didn't we, and the, um, the, the, the covenant promise that, that Job, he sort of makes it with himself, but he makes it under God, not to allow his eye to dwell lustfully upon a young lady. Joseph is battling with this same, this same thing. He's a single man. There would have been a huge temptation there. A huge temptation. He's absolutely 100% committed to doing the right thing under God. Now, of course, Joseph didn't always get it right in his life. We can point to other examples. But in this one, he sets us a great example of self-control. The self-control that he exercises here is phenomenal. We're told that she spoke to Joseph day after day and he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. So Joseph is in the house and Potiphar is away on business and Joseph knows that Potiphar's wife is desperately trying to get him into bed. And so Joseph does a very sensible thing. He doesn't just say no, but he knows that, he knows that he's, he's, he's human. He, he feels temptation. He would have gone away from that situation having said, no, no. There would have been a whisper in his ear that we all get when we're in, in situations of temptation saying, what if? Might have been fun. What if he never found out? What if, what if we keep it our secret? Why not? There would have been that whisper in his ear and he would have been battling and, and, think, and thinking, no, I can't do it. No, no, what if? Yeah, no, 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 what if? That, that dilemma would have, been, would have been going through his mind. And so what he decides to do is not to keep saying no to her, but he decides not even to be with her. 
So, in other words, not even to be in the same room as her. He removes himself from that position. You see, this is a story of temptation. This is a story of self-control. Self-control, we see here, is it's the, it's the tool, or, or if you like, the weapon that God gives us to fight temptation. You see, temptation itself isn't a sin. We, we know that because Jesus himself was tempted. Jesus was taken into the desert, wasn't he, and tempted straight after his baptism. He fasts for 40 days and Satan t- comes to him and tempts him. And yet, we know Jesus was without sin. That's why when we come before the communion table later on, we will acknowledge that Jesus was sacrificed. He was the only sacrifice good enough to take away the sin of the world because he was pure. He was absolutely pure. So temptation is not a sin. Succumbing to temptation is the sin. Sin is the result of succumbing to temptation. So Joseph here, he has this, this moral dilemma. She's saying, come to bed with me. And eventually we read in verse 11 and 12, one day he went to the house to attend his duties and none of the household servants were inside. Accountability is out the window. She could claim anything she liked. He wouldn't pass his next DBS check, would he? She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. So she's she's physically now trying to drag him into the bedroom. This woman is desperate for him. She succumbed to temptation. She's seen him, she's wanted him. She could have thought, no, I'm married to Potiphar. I'm married to this, this guy who's a general in the army, the head of the imperial guard. This powerful, wealthy man. But no, she, she sees Joseph and she wants Joseph. She succumb, succumbs to the temptation. And Joseph's response... He, left, he leaves his cloak and he runs from the house. Now, a cloak was a, a, a pretty important piece of clothing. It'd be, I complimented Norman on his, on his overcoat this morning. I thought it looked really slick and nice. I complimented it. You see, when, when, we, when we have a nice item of clothing, it compliments us. We look good. We like it. We want to keep it. Joseph, though, knows that there is nothing more important than retaining his moral values. He lets go of that. And he runs. He gets himself out of that situation. Self-control. Self-control is this, this, this thing that we all have. Some people say, oh, I've got no self-control. You have, you just choose not to exercise it. As Christians, it is absolutely imperative that we exercise self-control in every situation. It's the tool or the weapon whatever way you want to see it, that we have to overcome temptation. It's the thing that we have that we can fight off every attack from the enemy that is thrown at us. There is temptation to to capitulate. There is temptation to, to, to be overcome, to give in to sin, to do the wrong thing. But God gives us self-control. We often say, don't we, we're not, we're not made to be robotic. God gives us a choice. We can choose to follow him or we can choose not to. In other words, we can choose to exercise self-control, to do what we know is right, to do the sensible thing, or we can choose to take the risk 
Have a bit of fun, you never know. But ultimately, that route leads to destruction. We do know that because the world is littered with examples of lives that have been ruined as a result of going down that route. But of course, that self-control in the short term didn't seem to do Joseph any favours. Pretty quickly he found himself accused by Potiphar's wife of of trying it on with her, (laughs) the audacity, and he finds himself in prison. Immediately, suddenly, this, this, um, this guy who's been accepted into the Egyptian um, uh, culture, the, the Egyptian social sphere, who's held this very high position, suddenly he's reminded that he's not one of them. He, he's, in, in verse 17, she goes and she tells her story, Potiphar's wife, she tells her story to Potiphar. She says, look, I've got his cloak. I ripped, I ripped, I, it came off him as, as I was fighting him off. She says, that Hebrew slave... She suddenly reminds everybody that he's not one of us, is he? He's not one of us. He doesn't share our values. That Hebrew slave. He came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak and ran out of the house. So, of course, Joseph soon finds himself back in prison as a result of his self-control. She feels, Potiphar's wife feels slighted, offended, embarrassed possibly. She doesn't want Joseph going and telling Potiphar or, or, or anyone else for that matter. That Hebrew slave. But Joseph finds himself back in prison and he knows that he's not on his own. He knows that God's with him. And we're told the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warder. Even in prison. A prison, we don't know what the conditions were like, but I don't imagine they were particularly nice. Potiphar probably would have made sure that Joseph suffered, maybe tortured, maybe not fed. Who knows? But God was with him. And Joseph didn't compromise his values. And so soon, God granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warder. And Joseph again found himself in charge of all those held in prison. We're told at the end of the chapter that God was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So you see, that self-control that Joseph shows, it, it, does, it does pay dividends. It does help him. Not in the short term, he gets thrown in prison. In the eyes of the world, Joseph, ends, jo- Joseph throws everything away in that passage. He starts off having, having climbed that, that almost impossible ladder to go from slaves that have been bought by an Egyptian to suddenly being number one in the household. A very important household for that matter. This, this fantastic position he's in. And the world would read that and say, what a, what a wally. He's got everything. And then suddenly he has this woman throwing herself at him. She wants to, wants to keep it quiet, wants to keep it between them in, a, in an empty house. This guy could have had it made and he throws it all away. But when we read it through the eyes of faith, through the lens of faith, that Joseph got that spot on. 
He, he exercised self-control. He, he combated temptation. He overcame it. When we look at Jesus' temptations, we, we, see, we see a similar thing. According to Matthew, Jesus, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, found himself hungry. <laughs> Funny that. I think I'd be hungry after about 40 minutes. Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Prove it to me. See, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because the number of times that I found myself having conversations with friends or relatives or colleagues, and not colleagues now, colleagues when I used to work up in the city, and um, prove, give evidence. Why? You know, this, this, this faith you talk about, Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? You can't turn water into wine. <laughs> if you could, if you could, I'd give you a massive pay rise. Say there's a fortune on expenses. That'd be great. What a party trick. Turn water into wine. Walk on water. Rubbish. That'd be ridiculous. People want solid proof. People want evidence. People don't realise that we are called to have faith and that faith relies on there being a gap between where the evidence ends and where the truth begins. We bridge that gap with faith. If you are the son of God and turn these stones into bread, if your God is real, then how come you've defaulted on your mortgage this month? If your God is real, then how come you had two bottles of wine last night and were thrown up in a gutter outside the pub? If your God is real, how come your dad's got cancer? If is one of the greatest tools that Satan uses. That doubt, that niggle. But we have the self-control to read scripture and to respond by saying, my God is with me in this. Everything Everything that happens in the world, all these, these negative things, they are a result of the fall. They are a result of that, that want for knowledge, that, that want for everything that was hanging in the tree that was forbidden because God knew what was best for us, but we ignored him and said, no, we're going to take it. We're going to have it. Like the boy in the classroom. Oh, I can see all the answers. Great. I don't have to worry about the test. You see, we do have to worry about the test. We do have to listen to the questions that we are asked. God asks us questions every day. Are you up to this? Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to take the path I've got for you or are you going to make your own way? Let's not make the same mistake time after time. Jesus, as ever, is the ultimate example of self-control. It was self-control that took him through 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, being tempted time and time again. Until eventually, we're told, when the devil has finished tempting him, he left. Until an opportune time. Satan doesn't give up on us but nor does God. Satan will come back and tempt us time and time again and every time we, we win a moral victory, 
You see, just like Potiphar's wife, we're told that she, she tried and tried and tried to get Joseph into bed. This young guy must have gone through a horrific time until he got to the point where he just had to run, get himself out of there, no matter what it cost him. It might have cost him a cloak, it might have cost him his, his future, it might have cost him his life for all he knew at that point, but it was worth it to get himself out of there, away from that temptation. If we, if we, if we find ourselves in a situation where, where we're, we're, we're close to being over, overwhelmed, overcome by temptation, get yourself out of the situation. It might be a job. It might be a relationship. It might be a friendship. If we are being tormented and tempted, look at what Joseph does. Get yourself out of the situation. But don't be deceived into thinking that will be the end of it. Satan might leave us for a time, but it will be a short time before he returns. You see, we are in this constant battle, but we have, we have tools to fight back with, and self-control is one of the most important ones that we have. Another one is contentment, which is kind of very closely linked to self-control, being content with what we have. Again, Joseph points to everything he has. No one's more important in this house than I am. Potiphar, trust me with everything except you. You're his wife. Therefore, I want nothing to do with this. He's content with what he has. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. Let's not fall into that trap. Instead, as we come before the communion table this morning, let's just take some time To ask ourselves, what are the temptations that we face? And we're not going to have a time of open confession or anything like that, but we are just going to take some time to prepare ourselves, to be honest before God and honest with ourselves. What are the the temptations in life that, that I struggle with? The temptations that sometimes overwhelm me. The temptations that I need to be able to recognise and to say no. To drop my cloak and run when I find that I'm faced with it. And also we can ask ourselves, just, we can just mentally list the things in life that bring us contentment. The things in life that we can thank God for and we can say, I get contentment from. Whatever it is, just have a list in, in, in your mind. Some people find that you know, getting home and writing it down is helpful. To go back to time and time again when we're going through times of where, where, I've got, where, where we've got that voice whispering, if. We can look at that list and say, these are the things that God's blessed me with. This is the contentment I have. I won't want for anything else because 
God makes me content. If we feel contentment, it's a lot easier to resist temptation. If we're happy with the way we are, then to, to, to explore temptation is to risk that happiness. And it all comes down to exercising self-control. In 2 Peter, self-control is linked very closely to a, a healthy relationship with God and with other people. It helps us love God and it helps us love our neighbour. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, self-control, it, play, it, it, it plays a massive part there. Between It links knowledge to perseverance. We have a certain amount of knowledge. We can look around us and understand certain things about the world, but there is so much that we don't understand. The second that we think we know more than we do, then we... The second that we, we, we start making decisions that we're not capable of making and doing things we're not supposed to be doing, suddenly we start following the wrong path. The path that takes us away from God, from our Creator, from the One that loves us and the One that wants to be reconciled with us. From the One that sent His Son into the world to live amongst us, to teach us, to guide us, to help us, to pray for us and eventually to die for us on the cross at Calvary to reconcile us to our Father. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Jones to come up and lead us in sung worship before we share communion together. And as we do these things, if you have a a temptation or something in life that you're battling with, give it to God. Be honest with him. Ask for his help in dealing with whatever it is. Ask for his help in in being strong, in administering that that self-control. But also, celebrate what it is that brings contentment to your life. Celebrate Something. It might be a list of things or it might be one thing that you draw strength from, that you take joy from, that makes you feel content and happy in that aspect of life. And give thanks for that and cling on to that. Let's pray.